homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. Welcome back young friends and everyone joining for this gradual teaching series. We are continuing to look at the Buddha's gradual instructions on the heavenly realms. And today's session we're looking at the heavenly realms of form, Rupa Loka. In our last session we looked at the Karma Loka, which is the six realms that are the central heavenly realms. And today we look at the 16 realms of form which are above those. And what we know about these realms is that they are accessible to beings who have attained some form of mental absorption, so some level of jhana. And the divine beings of these realms experience very refined degrees of mental pleasure. They also possess extremely refined bodies of pure light or radiance. But there is still some kind of material form, but it's very subtle. So when they appear to humans, the suttas often say that they need to take on a more gross form in order to be seen. But what is true about these material form realms is that the lifespan is very, very long. So previously in the sensual heavenly realms, we talked of the lifespan in terms of celestial years. But the duration for the divine beings of these material form realms is expressed in mahakappas or eons. And the Buddha defines these extremely long periods of time using an analogy. What he says is that a mahakappa is the length of time it would take to wear away a mountain of solid rock six miles high and six miles wide, rubbing it over with a piece of fine muslin. So it's a very fine piece of cloth once every hundred years. So that's, that's going to take a very long time. But although they live for a very long time, it's still temporary and they'll be reborn again, determined by their kamma. And that's also despite the bliss that they experience in these heavenly realms. So unless they develop the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, which is the way leading to the ending of all suffering, then they're still subject to impermanence, to suffering and to misapprehending self. Now the suttas tend to talk in terms of devas and brahmas, and they use them a little interchangeably when they refer to beings of these heavenly realms of form. It can be a little bit confusing. In broad terms, you can call all of them devas, but in a narrower sense, the first three heavens of the material form worlds, they are referred to as Brahmakayaka devas, or the divine beings of Brahma's company or Brahma's host. So the first three that are accessible due to the first jhana, normally they're the ones that are called Brahmas. But for all intents and purposes, applying deva to, to all the rest is, is what is common. So let's begin by looking at some of these realms in more detail. Let's start with the Brahmakayaka devas. So these are the heavenly beings of the Brahma world. They inhabit the first three heavens of the form world. And it corresponds with the first mental absorption or first jhana. And so it depends on the degree to which you can experience the bliss of the first jhana that will determine which of the Brahma realms you are born into. So the Brahma Parasadja Devas, the retinue of Brahma, these beings enjoy a lesser degree of jhanic bliss. Then you have the Brahma Purohitta Devas, the ministers of Brahma, they enjoy a moderate degree of jhanic bliss. And then you have the Mahabrahma Devas, so the great Brahmas who enjoy a high degree of jhanic bliss. The great Brahma resides in the Mahabrahmadeva realm. So when you read the suttas, what you find is that it seems to be a far distance away in terms of physical distance. Brahma Sahampati speaks with Venerable Brahmadeva's mother 
in the Brahmadeva Sutta, and he says, far from here is the Brahma realm. We also learn from the Samachitta Vagga in Anguttara Nikaya that in order to be born into the Brahma realm, the Buddha says you need to develop a peaceful mind. And Brahmas create subtle bodies when needed, such as when they go to listen to Venerable Sariputta and they speak with Venerable Mahamogulana, they need to present themselves to actually be seen. What we also know is you don't have to be a follower of the Buddha to be reborn in the Brahma's company. If you go to the Sunetta Sutta, you find that there were other teachers such as Sunetta, Mukapaka, Aranemi, Kudalaka, Hatipala, Jotipala, and Araka. And they were teachers who were all free of sensual desire and they had many students and disciples. And if those students were full of confidence in their teacher, they could be reborn in a good place. So they could be reborn in the company of Brahma. But if they lack confidence in their teachers, they wouldn't be born there, but they'd be born in a place of loss or a bad destination. And the Jatakas, these stories contain a lot of accounts of ascetics who practice meditation and after death they were born in the Brahma world. So there are attainments of divine beings that live in Brahma's company. In Tissa Sutta, this is also in Anguttara Nikaya, chapter 7, discourse number 56, some of these divine beings they know when a person has been liberated with nothing left over. So there are two Brahmas that come to visit the Buddha and they say to the Buddha that there are two nuns who are well freed with, without anything left over. And when Venerable Mahamokalana visits Tissa Brahma and he was a monk, disciple of the Buddha before he passed away and he was reborn as Tissa Brahma and he gives details of what Brahmas can and can't tell. And so what he says from the suttas is these gods of Brahma's company who are content with the lifespan of Brahma, with the beauty, happiness, fame and sovereignty of Brahma, and who don't truly understand any higher escape, they don't know this. But those gods of Brahma's company who are not content with the lifespan of Brahma, with the beauty, happiness and fame and sovereignty of Brahma, and who do truly understand a higher escape, they do know this. And then he goes on to explain that they can tell, as long as their body remains, they will be seen by gods and humans. But when their body breaks up, gods and humans will see them no more. And so you see that there are some attainments that these divine beings have. There are some interesting stories in the suttas about this Brahma Parisacha Deva realm, so the retinue of Brahma or Brahma's assembly. And what we know is that you have to be able to develop the first jhana, but only to a low degree to be reborn in this particular realm. So they have long lives and radiant bodies, but it's still said that if you're born into this realm, once the lifespan is over, you'll be reborn in a lower realm. But if you're a disciple of the Buddha walking the Noble Eightfold Path, you can actually complete the path, realize Nibbana from this realm. The Buddha would often visit the retinue of Brahma in order to teach. And there are a number of stories which are quite interesting. So the first story is there's an unnamed Brahma who thinks that he's so powerful so he doesn't think anybody could come up to him or approach him. So the Buddha actually using his psychic abilities can, can hear that. And so he goes straight to that realm and appears wrapped in flames above the Brahma's head. And Venerable Mahamogalana and several other disciples follow the Buddha and see the demonstration. And so this particular Brahma and his retinue are, are very impressed. And then they send a message to Venerable Mahamogalana through one of the retinue. So we know that these Brahmas, they can travel so this is Anyatara Brahma Sutta, Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 6, discourse number 5. 
There's also another sutta that the Buddha tells about one of the past Buddhas. And so this is from the Arunavati Sutta on Kutrikaya chapter 6, discourse number 13. And the Buddha is actually telling us about a past Buddha called Sikhi Buddha. And his chief disciples were called Abhibhu and Sambhava. So there's a story where Sikhi Buddha was accompanied by his two chief disciples to visit this particular Brahma realm, so the retinue of Brahma. And the Buddha, instead of giving the teaching himself, he asked Abhibhu to give the teaching. But the Brahma and the assembly were not happy about that. They complained, they grumbled, they objected to Abhibhu giving the teaching instead of the Buddha, or even giving the teaching in the presence of the Buddha. But the Buddha then asked Abhibhu to demonstrate his abilities. So when he taught the Dhamma, he taught it showing his body visible. He also taught it being invisible. He taught it with half his body being visible and half his body being invisible. So upper half, lower half, and he, he kept chopping and changing between the two. And so you can imagine the Brahma and his assembly, his retinue, they were full of wonder and amazement. They thought, wow, that's incredible, that's amazing that Abhibhu has certain abilities. And he also made his voice heard throughout the galaxy. So while he was standing in the Brahma realm, he could project his voice to all the different realms. And that was checked by the Buddha with the monks when they returned to the human realm. And the monks confirmed that they could hear what Abhibhu had said. So what's interesting about this particular sutta is that the Brahmas tend to need certain demonstration of psychic ability to be amazed, otherwise, they complain and grumble and, and are not really ready to hear the, the Dhamma. There's one also very famous Brahma uh, known as Bhaka Brahma, and he had the wrong idea. And what's notable about this, and it appears in Majjhima discourse number 49, is that the Buddha actually heard the thoughts of this particular Brahma, and he wanted to go to the retinue of Brahma to actually correct the delusion. And at the time, Mara took possession of the retinue and tried to silence the Buddha, but it didn't work because Buddha could see it was Mara and was trying to influence Bhaka and his retinue. So using his psychic powers, the Buddha showed the error in Bhaka's view and he demonstrated as well that what Bhaka believed was that he was eternal, that there was no more aging, dying, and that what he thought was everlasting wasn't true. So what's interesting also about this is that Mara can influence beings of the lowest of the Brahma realms. And this is demonstrated in this particular sutta, that they're still quite vulnerable. So that's quite an interesting thing about this particular realm, that the Buddha actually goes to teach there. There isn't much specifically said about the Brahma Purita Devas, or the ministers of Brahma. What we do know is they develop the first jhana to a moderate degree, so an intermediate degree. And so they enjoy the bliss of that particular attainment. Uh, their age limit is a little bit more than the uh, previous Brahma realm. Uh, their bodies are a little bit more radiant than those of the Brahma Parisaja Devas. But you get a sense that there is a large assembly of Brahma ministers. But we don't hear stories of them and we don't know any individuals from this particular realm. But we know that they serve Mahabrahma but we don't know in what capacity, but they do form part of Mahabrahma's large retinue of, or assembly. The last of the Brahmakayaka Deva realms is the Mahabrahma Devas, and these are the great Brahmas. So what we know about this realm is that they've developed the first jhana to a high or superior degree. They have long lifespans, 
and a great Brahma rules over each of the Brahma realms. So they're said to have bodies that are formidable and so glorious. This is from the Mahasamaya Sutta, Tiga Nikaya, Discourse number 20. They also are said to have much luminosity. So their brightness is something that is quite distinguishable from the other Brahma realms. That when they manifest in front of other beings from the central heavenly realms, they first appear as a brilliant light and then they assume a gross body so that they can be perceived. And this is in a number of suttas in the Diganikaya. They're also said to have a voice that is like the call of a Karavika bird. Not sure what bird that is, but the distinguishing characteristics of that voice is that it's fluent, it's intelligible, it's sweet, it's audible, it's continuous, distinct, deep and resonant. That's from the Janavasabha Sutta, Diganikaya, Discourse number 18. So one time Venerable Bhattaji actually said that getting to see the Brahma, the vanquisher, the unvanquished, the universal seer, the wield of power, so he's talking about great Brahma, that's supposed to be the foremost of sights. But of course in this sutta, Bhattaji sutta, Venerable Ananda corrects him saying that in whatever way one sees such that immediately after the destruction of the taints occurs, that is the foremost sight. So it's when you actually end all defilements, that's the foremost sight. But it gives us an idea from Venerable Bhattaji that seeing a Mahabrahma is actually something that is quite amazing. So they're known to be quite mighty, quite powerful, but again, they're still subject to impermanence. They don't last, that when it comes to the end of their lifespan, they can actually be reborn again unless they walk the Buddha's path. So a lot of the suttas, they actually talk about how Mahabrahmas, they get absorbed into the wrong view that they're impermanent and everlasting because they wield such power and they have such wonderful attributes. So they often misapprehend the predicament that we all face. So there's examples such as Sunetta who was a teacher and then that particular time he practiced a lot of loving kindness, a lot of metta. And so he was reborn as a Mahabrahma but he still had the wrong view. And then we also learn of in the Brahmajala Sutta that Mahabrahma they actually believe that they are invincible. The thought that arises in Mahabrahma is something like, this must be Brahma, the great Brahma, the vanquisher, the unvanquished, the universal seer, the wield of power, the lord, the maker, the creator, the supreme being, the ordainer, the almighty, the father of all that are and are to be. So people that worship or believe in Mahabrahma, they often believe that that's the whole summit of the entire cosmos of everything that comes to be, but it's not so. So we see different suttas where Buddha corrects that view. So if you remember what we just spoke about, about Bhakka Brahma, that he thought that there's nothing higher than himself, but the Buddha actually demonstrated that there is, that it's only the first jhana that this Brahmakayaka Devas can access, but there's so much more than that. And even then, those are also still temporary. So it's quite interesting to hear that uh, Mahabrahma and the Brahmas of these realms, they have such lofty views, yet they don't see something that the Buddha is teaching, and so they cling to being reborn into these particular realms. We also learn a bit more about their appearance from one of the Mahabrahmas who teaches every two weeks the divine beings in the heavenly realms of sensuality. Uh, there's one Brahma called Sanan Kumara, and he's supposed to be exceedingly beautiful. That's the description that's given in Sanyutta Nikaya chapter 6, discourse number 11. And he would teach the devas twice a week in a hall called the Sudhamma Hall, and they would come to listen to Dhamma. 
Brahma Sanam Kumara was someone who had already entered the Buddha's path. That's why he would be teaching Dhamma. We, we hear about great assemblies. Mahasamaya Sutta in the Diganikaya often talks about great assembly. So we hear the names of other Brahmans. We hear Subrahma, Paramatta, we hear Tissa. So these different Mahabrahmas and Harita as well and, and his retinue. So Paramatta is just a name to us. We don't really know very much about him. Sanankumara is the one that teaches and is supposed to be exceedingly beautiful. Tissa we've heard of before, he was a bhikkhu under the Buddha and when he died he was reborn as Mahabrahma. We also know that he had a lot of power and glory. Harita in the suttas it identifies him as being in the midst of others in a retinue. And there's also Subrahma who's identified as a Pachaka Brahma, so maybe a Brahma that goes by himself without having a retinue. So these are some of the examples that we get of Mahabrahma. But the main thing is that although they wield a lot of power and have many good attributes, they're still subject to impermanence. And they don't see that because they have the wrong view. We now come to the realms of form corresponding to the second jhana, so the second mental absorption. And generically, all the beings in, this, in these three realms are known as Abhasra Devas. And what the Patamana Nana Karana Sutta says is that as the placing of the mind and keeping it connected are stilled, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which has the rapture and bliss born of concentration, with internal clarity and confidence and unified mind, without placing the mind and keeping it connected. They enjoy it and like it and find it satisfying. If they abide in that, are committed to it, and meditate on it often without losing it, when they die they are reborn in the company of Abhasara Devas. An ordinary person stays there until the lifespan of those Devas is spent, then they go down to the lower realms, so hells, animal realms or hungry ghost realm. But a noble disciple of the Buddha stays there until the lifespan is spent, then they are extinguished in that very life, so they experience Nibbana. Or realize Nibbana and what we know is that the beings in this realm they're the ones that don't fall away from the second jhana and Abhasara means shining or radiant or streaming radiance. The distinction between the three different realms is the level of ability of remaining in the second jhana. So the first one is Paritabha Devas, so limited radiance. That means they don't have a strong degree, they actually have a lesser degree of ability in the second jhana. Then you have the Upamanabha Devas, so they have unlimited or immeasurable unbounded radiance and they have more of a moderate degree of ability at the second jhana. And then you have those with the superior or higher degree, so this is the Abhasara Devas, Devas of streaming radiance. And we, what we know about them from the Satavinyana Titi Sutta is that they're unified in body, so they're very similar in body, and they have diversity in what they perceive, so diverse in perceptions. And what they're said to dwell on is rapture, Piti. And we learn this from the Pinda Sutta, it's in Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 4, discourse number 18. Mara tries to possess or influence the minds of villagers and what he does is he tries to deny the Buddha alms food and we've seen Mara do this time and time again he tries to obstruct and cause trouble and what the Buddha says is he denies Mara by saying 
Happily indeed we live, we own nothing, and we shall dwell feeding on rapture like the devas of the streaming radiance, the Avasara devas. So even though there's no food that's been offered by the villagers in this particular instance of the sutta, he and the monks will dwell on rapture, on piti, on joy. And we also learn a little bit about the devas of streaming radiance from Venerable Bhattaji when he's having that conversation with Venerable Ananda and he talks about the entire cosmos and his reference to the devas of streaming radiance. He says that they're suffused and inundated with happiness and you sometimes hear them utter the phrase, oh what happiness, and when you get to hear that he calls that the foremost kind of hearing. So it must be quite a wonderful sound when you hear them utter that. And of course, Venerable Ananda corrects him and says that the happiest sound is what, what you hear after someone has realized Nibbana, which of course is completely different. And then the Sangiti Sutta, the reference to Abhasar Devas is, they're overflowing with happiness, drenched with happiness, completely filled with happiness, immersed in happiness. So we get this very strong idea or strong emphasis of happiness and joy of the Abhasara Devas. Now, we also learn some interesting information about this particular realm in that the Brahmajala Sutta, Discourse number 1, so it's the first of the longer discourses, it talks about when the world contracts. And what it says is, there comes a time, because when after the lapse of a long period, this world contracts, disintegrates. While the world is contracting, beings for the most part are reborn in the Avasara Deva world. There they dwell, mind-made, feeding on rapture, self-luminous, moving through the air, abiding in glory, and they continue thus for a long, long period of time. But sooner or later, after the lapse of a long period, there comes a time when this world begins to expand once again. While the world is expanding, an empty palace of Brahma appears. Then a certain being, due to the exhaustion of his lifespan or the exhaustion of his merit, passes away from the Avasara plane, and re-arises in the empty palace of Brahma. There he dwells, mind-made, feeding on rapture, self-luminous, moving through the air, abiding in glory, and he continues thus for a long, long period of time. And it goes on and on. But the interesting thing is that beings start to be reborn in the Avasara Deva world. And so this is again confirmed in the Nikaya. Patama Kosala Sutta, when it says, when the world is dissolving, the devas of the streaming radiance rank as the foremost. And unlike the other heavenly realms or deva realms that we've looked at, we don't have any individual stories about Avasra devas to compare with. We don't know any of them, particularly by name, but all we know is that they're, they're also part of samsara, so they fall. But we also have one story from the Jatakas, it's Jataka number 405, about Bhakka Brahma. It indicates some of his rebirths, and one of which is in the Avasara Deva realm. And it says, in a former birth, this Brahma had once practiced meditation. So he was born in the Vehapala heaven, having spent there an existence of 500 Mahakappas. He was born in the Subhakinha heaven. After 64 Mahakappas, there he passed and was reborn in the Avasara heaven where existence is for eight Mahakappas. It was there that this false doctrine arose in him, so the wrong view. He forgot that he had passed from the high Deva heavens and had been born in that heaven and perceiving neither of these things had taken up the wrong view. So that's what we know about the realms of form associated with the second jhana. We now come to the realms of form that are associated with the third jhana. 
and collectively we know them as the Subakina Devas, so Devas of refulgent glory or replete glory. Subakina normally translates as lustrous, replete or refulgent. And beings are reborn into this, uh, these particular realms because of their development of the third jhana, the third mental absorption, and they don't fall away from the third jhana. So the degree to which you are able to remain in the third jhana determines which particular realm you are born into. So at the lower level, Paratasubha Devas, so Devas of limited glory, they have the lesser degree of ability at the third jhana. Then you have the upper Manasubha Devas, so they have unlimited glory, so they have the moderate, moderate degree of ability at the third jhana. And then of course you have the Subhakina Devas, so they have the superior degree of ability at the third jhana level. Now what we know from the Digha Nikaya, the longer discourses, is that unlike the Abhasara Devas who exclaim their joy, the Subhakina Devas, they are filled and pervaded with happiness and are serenely blissful. They experience only sublime happiness and they're meant to radiate a lot of light from their bodies in a very steady brightness. So what we learn is that they're unified in body and also unified in perception. So this is, we know from the Sata Vijnana Titi Sutta. And when the Buddha is teaching Puna in one of the suttas, uh, he talks about this particular ascetic Puna. He practices very extreme, austere practices. And so the Buddha is teaching about Kamma, teaching me about bright action and bright result. Uh, this is a sutta we've actually spoken of before. And in this particular sutta, the Buddha says to him about Subhakina Devas, uh, here someone generates an unafflictive bodily formation, an unafflictive verbal formation, and an unafflictive mental formation. Having generated these three types of formations, one reappears in an unafflictive world. When he has reappeared in an unafflictive world, unafflictive contacts touch him. Being touched by unafflictive contacts, he feels unafflictive feelings. So this is exclusive or extreme happiness or pleasure, as in the case of the Devas of refulgent glory. So these are the Subhakina Devas. And thus a being's reappearance is due to a being. One reappears through actions one has performed. When one has reappeared, contacts touch one. That, thus I say beings are the heirs of their actions. So clearly if you have very good actions, they're unafflictive, then you would meditate in a particular way where you reappear in such a, such a, a realm. So he gives the same kind of teaching in the Sankara Sutta. This is Anguttara Nikaya, chapter 3, discourse number 23, when he talks about three different kinds of persons and makes reference to Subhakina Devas. Again, we have this reference to Venerable Babaji, and he thinks that the foremost happiness is actually these Devas of refulgent glory. He says they are very happy, they experience very peaceful happiness. And of course, Venerable Ananda corrects him by saying, the foremost happiness is when one has actually realized Nibbana. What's interesting about this is we also have reference to a teaching given to a wanderer called Udayi. And it's interesting because wanderers at the time of the Buddha were the ones that really wanted to be reborn in these kinds of Deva realms. And it said that ascetics were the ones that really wanted to be reborn in the Deva realms associated with uh, the second jhana, so the Abhasara Deva realms. So when it comes to wanderers, they often declared their goal as 
looking for ekanta sukoloko, so the world of exclusive pleasure, that's the goal of their path. And the way of keeping it was always through moral precepts and the practice of asceticism. And in this particular sutta, which is in Majjhimikaya Discourse number 79, the Buddha says the third jhana is the way to the world of exclusive uh, happiness or pleasure. And Udai, who he's teaching at this time, objects and says that the state of jhana is itself such a world and the goal has been reached. But the Buddha says that the third jhana is the only way to the world of exclusive pleasure or happiness, but it's not the world itself. And then all the people that were following or uh, around Udaya, they were actually very upset because they actually thought that the, the jhana itself was the world that they were seeking. And so they cried out, we are lost, we are lost amongst the doctrines of our teachers. And so this is the way that the Buddha even teaches about certain things because there are people, different practices where people have wrong views about what is really the case when it comes to these realms and practices. So we don't know any individual stories about Subhakina Devas. We're not told any of their names, but there are indeed a lot of Devas that the Buddha talks of in the suttas that are associated with these realms. We now come to the realms of form associated with the fourth jhana. So if you can master the fourth jhana and not fall away from it, then the ability to be reborn into any of these realms is possible. Uh, there are a few exceptions. So the beings at this fourth jhana level, they're not divided into grades like the other realms that we've been through. The first one is the Vehapala Devas, and they're the very fruitful Devas. So they have broad experience of the fourth jhana. Then you have the Asanya Sata Devas, so the Devas who are non-percipient beings, so only the body is present, no mind. And the beings in this realm also have the broad experience of the fourth jhana. But then you have the Sudhavasa Devas, so Devas of pure abodes, and there are five different uh, realms in Sudhavasa. And so they have a very good experience of the fourth jhana, but only Anagami, so non-returners, are reborn into these pure abodes. And so we're not going to look at that in these, this particular talk, we're going to look at that separately, the Sudhavasa Devas. So we'll just focus on the other two realms here. The Vehapala Devas, what we know is that from the Pathama Nanakarana Sutta, again, it says, giving up pleasure and pain and ending former happiness and sadness, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana. Without pleasure or pain, with pure equanimity and mindfulness, one enjoys it and likes it and finds it satisfying. If one abides in that, is committed to it and meditates on it often without losing it, when one dies, one is reborn in the company of the Vehapala Devas. The lifespan of the Vehvala Devas is 500 Makapas. An ordinary person stays there until the lifespan of those Devas is spent. Then they go to the lower realms, hells, animal realm or hungry ghost realm. But a disciple of the Buddha stays there until the lifespan of those Devas is spent. Then they're extinguished in that very life. So they realize Nibbana. Now what we know, if you remember, is Baka Brahma. He was born into this very fruitful deva realm. So we know that from Jataka number 405. Vehapala usually translates as abundant fruit, fruitful or great fruit. And we don't know a great deal more than that. There's no individual other stories about these devas. 
and we come to the Asanyasata Devas, so Devas who are non-percipient beings. Sanya means perception. Asanya means non-perception or not able to perceive. So beings in this realm are ones that are not able to perceive. And having developed the fourth jhana, one can be reborn here. The age limit or the lifespan is 500 Mahakapas. And what's interesting about this particular realm is that they don't experience anything. And what the Satavasa Sutta says is that sentient beings that are non-percipient, they do not experience anything. They experience nothing such as these devas who are non-percipient beings. So this is Anguttanikaya chapter 9, discourse number 24, and the exact same reference appears in the Sangiti Sutta. Now what we know from the Brahmajala Sutta, which is all about the net of views, particularly wrong views, is that the Buddha talks about different views associated with perception and non-perception, and particularly around immortality. People believe that they're immortal due to certain practices. And they believe that after they die, they actually survive that and they're immortal on a number of grounds. So we're not going to go through the different types of grounds that the Buddha talks about it because it's quite technical. But what we can say is that in these realms, you don't actually experience anything because you just attain the fourth jhana and you see some kind of disadvantage about thought and perception. You think that that causes the suffering. And so through your meditation practice, what you believe is that you want to eliminate all the mental processes. So in the suttas, you read about Brahman ascetics at the time of the Buddha who were continually practicing meditation in order to just simply eliminate all mental processes. And you probably also hear that even today, people doing so. But what is said is that if you die in this condition with that aspiration, you will be reborn into a place such as the Asanyasatha Deva realm and you'll, you'll have some kind of form but you won't have any sensations, any ideas, any consciousness and so you last as long as the power of your jhana, so the fourth jhana. But as soon as you have a moment of perception and this is in the Pathika Sutta, Dignikaya Discourse number 24, then once this single perception arises, then you fall away from that realm and you're reborn elsewhere. And it doesn't say where you're reborn, but you're reborn elsewhere. And it's always lower. Existence in this particular realm is not considered to be a very good place. It's not opportune. There's no opportunity to practice, to develop further. We do have an account from Sobhita of being reborn into the Asanyasatta Deva realm. And it's quite a remarkable feat. Sobhidathera was able to declare that because he actually recalled that in one sitting. And the Buddha explained that that was such a remarkable thing to be able to recall. So he wasn't claiming any supernormal attainment, which would have been a disciplinary offence. Instead, he was just claiming to have recalled that single existence. And so Buddha, on, on the back of that, he declared Sorbidathera as his foremost of the monk disciples who could recollect past lives. And this is in the Anguttara Nikaya. So Sorbidathera's, his own account is, appears in the Theragatha. And what he says about that experience is, As a monk, mindful and wise, empowered and full of energy, I recollected 500 Mahakappas in a single night, developing the four kinds of mindfulness meditation, the seven factors of awakening and the Noble Eightfold Path. I recollected 500 Mahakappas in a single night. And so the important thing about this particular realm uh, is that, again, it's something that you can fall from. 
But also not only that, it's a place where one cannot spiritually develop unlike other form realms. And so it's not a very good thing to think that you want to eliminate all mental processes, all thinking, all perceptions, all ideas, because you could end up in such a realm, be stuck there for a very, very long time, but not make any spiritual progress. We can end our session here. Let's share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Wishing you well, young friends. Teruan Saranai.